Exodus 33, here we go. I want to preach to you this morning out of Exodus 33 on the topic of God's presence. God's presence. God dwelling with his people. I'll start off this way. Chris and I uh, had a busy week. Uh, We took part in a preaching workshop called the Simeon Trust Workshop, where we gather with preachers from all over the region and uh, bring in some guys that help us hone our craft and handling the Word of God and preaching it. And Chris and I helped lead some small groups. And uh, for those of you who have been to a conference in town versus out of town, you know that sometimes in your head you think, oh, it'll be a little bit easier since I'm in town. You know, it'll be less busy. It's not true, right? When you go out of town, at least you're out of town. When you're in town, you do the conference all day and you come home and you try to do all the work that you didn't do during the day in the evening. And then you spend your late evening getting ready for the workshop the next day. All right, that was my week. So for my family, I was physically present, but not all that present with my family. And uh, they're doing fine. It was one week. Uh, This isn't confession of sin. They're all fine. But my youngest son, Levi, he is three, and he's a daddy's boy, and he's a quality time guy. He wants to snuggle. He wants to be in your face. He wants to be held, um, all of that. And so by the end of the week, Levi was over the Simeon Trust workshop. He was ready for it to be done. So Thursday morning, 7.30 in the morning, I grab my backpack. I'm on my way out the door, and here comes Levi in his little pajamas. He scoots up in front of the front door, reaches up you know, on his toes, locks the deadbolt, turns around, stands between me and the door, and he says, you're staying with me. Break my heart, why don't you, buddy? That's it, I'm quitting my job, stay home, dad, I'm with you all the time. But my son, he values presence, right? He knows I love him, but he wants to be with me, to be present. This morning, we're going to see a very similar scene, only on a much different level, between Moses, the man Moses and God. We're going to see Moses in a sense, stand before the proverbial door, look God square in the face, and say, you're staying with me. Um, Let me remind you of where we're at in the Exodus story. God has just promised in chapter 25 that he will dwell with his people. In 25 and 8, he says, let them make a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. This is unique, okay? Since the Garden of Eden, God has not dwelt physically in the presence of his people, This is a unique time in redemptive history where God has promised that he is going to come dwell with them. So for the past seven chapters in Exodus that we were reading, God is giving instructions for the temple. Here's how you're going to build the sanctuary. And here's my promise. I'm going to come and I'm going to dwell in your midst. I'm going to be with you. And in that time, while they're preparing, while God's giving his instructions for the sanctuary, for the tabernacle... Last week in chapter 32 that Joe preached, we learned that the people of God get bored, get impatient, and what do they do? They turn from God, they make little idols, and they worship the golden calves. The people of God have a memory problem, and they have a worship problem. Remember, God has just brought them out of the land of Egypt. God has just parted the Red Sea miraculously and walked them through it. God has just defeated their enemies on their behalf. God has just provided for them manna from heaven. God has just provided for them water from the rock. God has just promised to dwell in the midst of their people. And yet they forget, they turn to lesser gods, and they worship idols. And so at this point, God's just about to give them what they want. We're going to see in just a second, God's going to say, fine, you want the stuff and not me, you can have it, I will get out of the way. And the question that stands before Moses and the people of Israel that we're going to read in our text today, and the by proxy through the scriptures, stands between you and me today. The question is, 
Would we be all right getting what we want from God, but losing the presence of God? If God no longer dwelt in your life, one, would you care, and two, would you even notice? If God's presence left this place, this church family, this is a building and a crowd, without the presence of God, we are nothing but a building in a crowd. Would we be okay with that? So I want to call our hearts to sit under this word, and i got to get to it quick. But I just want to say, I don't want us to miss this text. I don't want us just, you know, I really want to get to the baptisms. I want to wrap up Exodus. But this is an important moment in the history of the world and in the scriptures that I really want us to sit under this morning. And I want to remind us, city light, God is a God of presence, a God of dwelling. See, in the gospel, God doesn't just save us from our sin and from death and from our enemies. He saves us to himself to worship him, to know him, to enjoy him, to exalt him, to be with him. His Holy Spirit has come to live in us. And I don't want us to be a people who are just generally religious, moral, well-intended, good church people. No, 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 no. City light. I want us to be a people that loves God. He's real. He's knowable. And the whole point of this gospel and what we do as a church family is to know him and to enjoy him and to exalt him above all things put him as first priority and king of our lives and in our church and to know him as our God. We don't want just his blessings. We want the blesser. We want to know God. And so that's what we're going to see. Is God going to dwell with his people? Uh, that's what we're going to look at in the text today. And so chapter 33, uh, verses 1 through 3. Um, uh, just real quick, remember the people that just worship the uh, calves. God now goes up before God to kind of intercede And God says, okay, I'm not going to wipe them out, but here's my concession. Chapter 33, verses 1 through 3, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. If you look at this and pay attention, this doesn't actually seem like all that bad of an offer on the surface, right? God is saying, hey, listen, I'm a God of my word. I promise that you're going to go to the promised land. I promise that you're going to live in a land flowing with milk and honey, and I'm going to keep my promise, okay? Okay? And so listen, I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna to send an angel ahead of you. You're going to get there safely. I'm going to get rid of your enemies in front of you. And you're going to get the promised land. And it's going to be a land with milk and honey. And so that doesn't sound all bad. Keep in mind, these people have been slaves for 400 years. Most recently, they've been wandering around a wilderness. They've been seeing a lot of sand. They've been eating the exact same thing every single day. It's tasting pretty bland. And God's saying, hey, you can have the land of milk and honey. That doesn't sound terrible. Now, I don't know what a land flowing with milk and honey is, but to me, it sounds like endless golf courses and bow hunting deer woods and Husker on the TV every day and steak every night for dinner, a boat in the garage. I mean, I could picture the land flowing with milk and honey. But here's the catch, verse 3. You probably caught it as I read it the first time. God says, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff neck. That means stubborn. You're stubborn people. It's like no matter what I do, your heart 
turns from me and you disobey. So God's saying, listen, you can have the earthly blessings, but uh, listen, you and me, this isn't going to work out. This covenant, you're not keeping it. And uh, in fact, you don't want me to go with you because I'm a holy God and you're a sinful people. He says, and I may consume you, (laughs) okay? Our God is a judge and he's holy and righteous. He's just saying, listen, sinful, rebellious man and holy, righteous judge God that that doesn't go well together. And so he says, listen, you can have the stuff, have the blessings, but you can't have me. And the question that I think we all need to wrestle with, which is implied here, is would you take the deal? Would I take the deal? I mean, really, just sit underneath this question. I think we all know the right answer, but mentally go there with me, okay? Because this is the real proposition between Moses and the Israelites. I want you to consider what is your proverbial promised land? Where is the place in life that more than anything you would love to be? Be it relationally, professionally, physically, as a family, whatever. You know, to finally have the spouse you've always wanted or finally get rid of the spouse that you never, you know, or to finally have the child that you've prayed for and that God hasn't brought or to finally have the job that you've been working for or to have the sick relative healthy, to have the broken relationships mended, to have the financial stress put away right? All of that. Add on top all the earthly pleasures, everything you could want. Your picture of the promised land, if God said, you can have this, but not me, would you take it? Moses says no. He doesn't take it. He knows that the blessings are beautiful, but he knows that the blesser is better than the blessings, and he stands in front of the door, and he says, I'm not going without you. You are staying with me. And so he pleads, and he intercedes, before God, and then look at verse 14. It seems that God is answering his prayer. We, we see what looks like some good news. He says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. The problem with God's answer here is that word for you, he could have used a plural you or a singular you. That's the singular you. What we may not pick up in our English translations is God is saying, yes, Moses, I'll go with you, you who weren't making the golden calves and bowing down before them. Moses, I'll go with you, but I won't go with the people. In the dialogue that happens in the preceding verses, Moses once again pleads with God, and he says, no, stands before the door again. We are your special people, and we are nothing without you. You will come with us, or we are not going. I want us to just stop and appreciate Moses in this moment, okay? Um, he's done a lot of dumb stuff in Exodus before this. He's going to do some dumb stuff after this. He blows it a million times. He's not our ultimate hero. We know that. Jesus is our ultimate hero. But this moment, I think, is what makes Moses one of the greatest men in human history. He has the real opportunity to receive God's blessings without his presence, and he turns it down. Then he has the opportunity to receive God's blessings and his presence And yet, for the sake of his nation and his people, he says no. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul essentially looks out on the nation of Israel and says, God, I would rather have it that I be accursed, separated, severed from Christ, that these people might know the love of God. That's what Moses is doing here. He's saying it's not about me. It's not enough that just I should know the presence of God. God, we all need your presence. And what we're seeing in Moses is the greatest commandment lived out, to love God and love others. 
We see Moses say, no, no blessings without the blesser, God, I want you. And God, not just me, but all of these people. We see him interceding on behalf of his nation. And what's amazing is God answers it. Look at verse 17. Moses prays and pleads with God, and here's how God answers. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Be really candid. I don't know how prayer works. I believe in a sovereign God who foreknows all things, who works all things according to his good pleasure. I believe God is in charge and he does what he wants. And yet when I read this book, I see that the prayers of his people move his hand. And so let me just, this isn't even in my notes, but I just want to say, you see the persistence of Moses here begging God for his mercy. And it's after several prayers that God finally says yes. And I think one application from this should be praying people, those of you who are praying for a wayward child, those of you who have been praying for healing, God might not say yes, but don't quit asking until he gives you an answer. The prayers of God's people move his hand. And in this place, God gives them what they ask for. God's presence is going to go before them. He's going to go with them into the promised land. God says, okay, you can have my blessings and you can have me the blesser. I will go with you. God will dwell with his people. But the lingering question is, but what about their sin? What about this problem that if God goes, he may consume them? Let me, uh, let me just summarize the rest of the book of Exodus. So we get the good news. God's going to go with his people. But yet, for the seven chapters that are left in the book of Exodus, we don't track with the Israelites going into the promised land. In fact, we got to go four more books of the Bible before we see Joshua actually leading the people into the promised land. Why? For the next three chapters, in a large part, or seven chapters, and in large part, the next three books of the Bible communicate an elaborate, exhaustive set of instructions for how a sinful group of people is going to be able to be in the presence of a holy God, and it's not a simple way forward. You read the rest of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and it's exhausting. God sets up this elaborate sacrificial system. So much blood, so many animals. He sets up this elaborate altar and specific instructions for how the priests are to slaughter the animals, how blood is to be spilt to atone for the sin of man. You see these elaborate instructions about the priesthood and how they had these special garments and how, to have the, how they had to go through a, an intense ceremonial and purification process and cleansing just so that they could go into the dwelling place of God to atone for the sins of man. It was an arduous and difficult set of rules and specific instructions. And this is how the people of God will relate to God for the remainder of the Old Testament. It's hard. There has to be sacrifice. There has to be sin atoned for. There must be blood. But City Light Church, as New Testament saints, what does that whole sacrificial system point us toward? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. The Bible says animals couldn't actually atone for the sin of man. It was but a picture of the coming one, Jesus Christ. How is God going to dwell with his people? An ultimate sacrifice would have to be made. Jesus comes 
John sees him and says, Behold the Lamb who is slain. Jesus comes as the sacrifice, fully God, eternal in his nature, so that he could pay for all of our sins eternally, fully man, so that he could pay for man's penalty that is due him for sins. And Jesus becomes a sacrifice. Why? So that God could dwell with us. Jesus comes in the New Testament and says, He is our high priest. All of these rules and the blood and the sacrifice and the interceding between God and his people, Jesus steps in and says, let me be your priest. And he is the one that goes before a holy God on our behalf and intercedes for us so that we can know God. In the middle of Exodus 33, it says that Moses and the tent of meeting would meet with Jesus, face, or God, face to face like a man does his friend. Jesus becomes our sacrifice, and our priest, so that we could know God face to face, like a man knows a friend. Not only is he our sacrifice, not only is he our priest, the Bible says that Jesus himself is Emmanuel, God with us. In the person of Jesus, God ultimately comes and fulfills the whole promise of Exodus, that he would dwell with his people. And he comes, and through his spirit and through his word, he makes our hearts his home. God dwells with us. Amazing, amen? It's amazing. What a treasure. I want to end with three quick points of application. First one is this. Just second, we're going to celebrate with four people who are getting baptized. And uh, I don't want us to miss this moment. What we're celebrating today is a miracle. See, God's promise for dwelling with his people, it isn't universally applied to every human on the earth. It's for those who will bow their knee and humbly submit themselves to Jesus, who will receive his forgiveness, receive his grace. And in that moment, they go from being an enemy of God to a friend of God, from dead in their sins to alive in Christ, from guilty to forgiven, from condemned to redeemed. And what we're going to celebrate this morning is that we have a God, the God of Exodus 33, who is still coming to dwell with his people. This is amazing. And so, church, here's what I want us to do. We're going to hear their testimonies. They're going to come up, and they're going to get baptized. And I don't, this is not a spectator sport. This is a spiritual family, and these are new brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I want to have just a great receiving party for our brothers and sisters. They were dead in their sin, but they are alive in Christ. God once dwelt far from them. He now lives in their heart. And we want to celebrate them and encourage them with the truths of the gospel. So this morning, give them a hug. Pray for them. Encourage them. Remember their name and face so next week you can say, I'm praying for you. I'm with you. Thank you for joining the family of God. Second thing is this. I need to say, listen, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, you are in the place of Exodus 32, the place where God stands against you, not for you. There is sin that is upon you. And I want you to know that it is possible that you can have all the earthly toys and the latest trinkets, but you don't have the eternal treasure that is Jesus Christ. Moses knew God, and he knew that the blesser is greater than all the blessings. And I want you to hear this truth today, that you can drink of the things of this world, but you will always be thirsty. I promise you that. They will always disappoint you. But in Christ, you will find the one thing that will ultimately satisfy. The golden calves won't do it. Your success won't do it. The career won't do it. Jesus is the thing that your heart longs for. And so I would invite you to place your faith in Jesus this morning, to trust him, to go from death to life. God wants to dwell in your heart. Would you receive him there? Third application is this. Church, um, 
we have a God who is not a systematic theology textbook, who's not an archaic set of doctrines, though doctrine is important. We love doctrine. We love our Bible. We have a God who is alive. We have a God who dwells among his people. And City Light Church is more than a building and a crowd. We are the people of God where God dwells. And I want to take this moment and just encourage you. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, but honestly, really, if you have not enjoyed just the fellowship of walking with God and knowing him day to day, being in his word, enjoying his company, talking with God like a man does a friend, here's my challenge for you. I pray that you wouldn't leave here this morning without doing the very thing that Moses did. Get in front of that door and say, God, I'm not leaving unless you're coming with me. I need more of you in my life. I know that I've trusted you. I know that you're with me. You're in my heart. I'm saved. Home in heaven is secured. But Jesus, I need more of you every day. I want to walk with you and experience you and know what it means to have you dwell in my life. Church, I want us to be a church that loves God, that knows him like a man knows a friend. And so would you pray with me? Jesus, who are we that we could know the living God. We look at Israel and we see but a picture of ourselves. We have a memory problem. It's so easy to get hyped up on a Sunday to hear these testimonies and get excited, but by Wednesday, we're looking for life in all the wrong places. Oh God, what grace that you would come and dwell among us. God, would you be the true treasure in our hearts? For every individual in this room, Um, God, would they know you and walk with you and enjoy you? For us as a church family, would the thing that marks and define us be that we are a people who know God, who love God, who walk with God, and who worship God? Jesus, now as we hear these testimonies, remind us that this is real stuff. These are real lives who have really met Jesus. God, we are in awe of you and what you're doing, and I pray that this time of baptisms now would be worshipful and celebratory in Jesus' good name. Amen.